Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com. Website creation is hard, but now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and get a unique WordPress website or store right away. From there, you can customize your design, colors, and content. And Bluehost automatically helps you get found in search engines like Google and Bing. From step-by-step guidance to suggested plugins, Bluehost makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Go to bluehost.com slash wondersuite. Today's podcast is presented by EPRA, the European Public Real Estate Association. Facing global megatrends like green transition and aging population, how will listed real estate contribute to a sustainable future and financial security for Europe? Hey everyone, welcome back to EU Confidential. I'm your host, Ryan Heath, the political editor at Politico Europe, and you're listening to the number one EU politics podcast. This week is all about political self-immolation. Let's start with Britain's midlife crisis, aka Brexit. It's like a live-streamed therapy session where the world is subjected to the rainy island's identity struggle as it transitions from being an empire owner to a clubless middle power. Theresa May decided she couldn't afford to put the unpopular Brexit deal to a vote this week. So what she bought herself instead was a vote on her leadership. Same people, same result. More than 100 refuseniks. It doesn't change a thing at the EU end, except to increase the astonishment at Britain's self-willingness to self-immolate at an even faster pace than Emmanuel Macron's presidency and plenty of French bus stops. Others in that race include Europe's socialist parties. They're down to 20% in opinion polls across Europe, and they invited everyone to Lisbon for what was supposed to be a congress to nominate their candidate for European Commission president. We all got there and were told that no, absolutely not. This is not a nominating conference. Even though there's only one candidate, Franz Timmermans, who we speak to next in the podcast, and even though he had the keynote slot and a live band introducing him with a diverse crowd of young people strategically positioned behind him as he did so. But no, that wasn't him accepting the socialist nomination. For that, everyone is supposed to go to Madrid in February. Good luck with that. And in the final act of self-immolation this week comes Zoltan Kovács, the spokesperson for the Hungarian government. He told Politico's Lily Bayer that she couldn't ask him questions at a press conference in Brussels this week because she wasn't, quote, a real reporter. That's especially funny because Lily is one of our best reporters, a fact that hundreds of people immediately told Kovach on Twitter when I broke the news. I think this incident is probably especially sad because Politico has no problem talking to Hungarian people or politicians and giving them a fair run when we do so. Case in point is that I had a three-hour dinner, no less, with the Hungarian ambassador to the EU and the Hungarian state secretary for EU affairs on Monday night. And this week's main interview is, you guessed it, the European commissioner from Hungary, Tibor Navracic. We'll go to Franz Timmermans first for a short interview and then to Navracic. So we're chatting with Franz Timmermans at the Socialist Conference. You're headed down to the conference hall. Tell us, what are your main messages to voters? Like, why do they need to turn out for a socialist vision over the coming months? Well, I think, first of all, this election is going to be about the soul of Europe. Are we as Europeans still capable of sticking together at a time where our unity is warranted, is needed? And, of course, if you ask people to stick together, you also have to have a plan why they should stick together. And I think... It is high time we as socialists made sure that companies started paying taxes where they make profits, 
that the wage gap is made smaller, that we have an answer to the issue of migration without losing sight of our values and humanity, that we transform our economy into a sustainable economy, that we change from using fossil fuel to using sustainable fuel sources. All these things need to be done in the years to come, and we have a plan for that. And are you confident that you can balance that line of governing in a compromising fashion with the sort of passion that voters are demanding now and the delegates here are demanding? They seem to want a fairly radical vision for how Europe should change. Yeah, but at the end of the day, Europe is made on the basis of compromises. That's the nature of European cooperation. The stronger we are, the more the compromise will be to the left. If voters give us the confidence, if voters give us their trust, if they trust us with their future, then we will make a Europe that is fairer, that makes sure that our fundamental values are adhered to so that everybody stays free, and that we create a Europe that is sustainable, not just in ecological terms, but also in social terms. And it seems your best chance for becoming Commission President would be to build a parliamentary majority around your vision rather than rely on becoming just the biggest party in the parliament. How do you think you can build that majority and get across the line? It all starts with a decent campaign and a good election result. If we don't get that, then all the rest is moot. Now, the EPP might have to rely on some fairly right-wing forces if they're going to assemble a majority in the parliament. Would you rule out particular parties and say that you would not accept far-right votes, for example? Well, the thing is, those people who vote far-right, I will never give up on them. I hope they'd be convinced to come back to left-wing politics. But those people who lead the far-right, I can't trust. They have a vision of Europe that's based on destruction that's based on breaking things, on having confrontation with others. That can never be a program for Europe. And I do hope that the centre-right understands that by occupying the space that is now occupied by the extreme rights, they're going to become extreme right themselves. They have to be extremely careful. You know, you, if you look at the experience so far, in Austria with uh, Kurz and Strache, um, who's, that, who's, who's calling the shots? Is it Kurz or is it Strache? Just asking the question, you know? I'm sure that you're going to keep asking that question. Franz Timmermans, thank you so much for joining us. My pleasure. Joining me now on EU Confidential is Commissioner Tibor Navracic, who has one of, in my opinion, the most interesting portfolios in the European Commission. Let me get this right, Commissioner. You are in charge of education, youth, culture, sport, and multilingualism. Did I get it right? Yeah, absolutely. And I also think that it's one of the most important and interesting portfolios of the European Commission. However, I I have to add that at the beginning, this portfolio was not as important as it is today. And that's in terms of funding, but also it seems to me like it's become a little bit more visible as well. I mean, my viewpoint is you're touching on all of these issues that people really care about. You know, they don't have the big legislative powers, maybe, that people associate with importance and weight in Brussels, but people care about football. They care about where their kids go to school. It matters that they understand what their neighbours think and feel about the world. When Eurobarometer asks the citizens to name one of the fundamental values and fundamental achievements of the European integration, Erasmus is among the top three achievements. So I think it's a huge achievement, and you're right, if we take the everyday life of the common people, all aspects, beginning from theatre to the stadiums, 
and the schools, obviously, it's in my portfolio. Well, we had, we're speaking on December the 4th, and we were having a big gala dinner last night for Politico, and Matteo Salvini was one of the guests. And even he said that he wanted to make sure his kids could benefit from things like the Erasmus program, freedom of movement, and so on. So it is an idea that's really penetrated. I mean, it's 25 years now that it's been going, I think. How many people have really gone through that program? So far, we've had more than 9 million citizens from all over Europe. My successor is going to have approximately 30 billion euros for seven years, which is quite a big sum. We would like to make Erasmus more accessible. And a broader, when we talk about the social appeal of, of Erasmus, we would like to make it more inclusive and more accessible. We want to make it even broader to restart the mobility scheme for secondary school students, for instance, or vocational education and training. And we want to give more funding for social inclusion projects as well. So I think Erasmus will be really a future-oriented project and not only a higher education mobility scheme. And it seems to me, I don't know if you agree with the theory, but it's programs like Erasmus that have probably done more to build some sense of shared European identity than a lot of other things. You know, people in this building in the EU headquarters, they really want people to have a European identity, but then the messages or the belief system often fails to filter down into people's minds, whereas something like Erasmus feels a lot more organic and seems like it it gives you experiences that stick with you for life. Exactly, exactly. That's the principal mission of Erasmus, to build up a multi-layer identity based on local, regional, even national loyalties, and to develop a European identity which can include all these other loyalties. And our experience is that Erasmus students usually report back that they really feel this kind of European identity after their Erasmus term. So I think as this experience, the personal touch and network and being on the ground and having friends in another country really helps build up this kind of European identity. Where should that debate go next, in a sense? You know, it feels like we're at a real point of rupture somehow in Europe's history, where, you know, sometimes you can see the technical legal responses, you might reopen treaty negotiations. At another level, it's really political, where you have sort of these kind of very sceptical forces, but then very pro-EU forces will battle each other out in the elections. And then you have all those more organic processes, like what you were describing there. Do you think, you know, can there be a happy ending to this rupture, or is it going to be a difficult period? I'm optimistic that this is a difficult period, but I think the next European Parliament elections will be the very first really meaningful and important European Parliament elections because what we are seeing now is the birth of the European political space. Now we have the very first European political issues that, for instance, migration, I think that's the very first pan-European political issue which will be in every EP election campaign, in in every member state, political parties shape their positions on migration and they will clash on those positions. So I think just like in a domestic political debate, it's sometimes painful, but uh, very useful because it really involves citizens, it raises the interests of the citizens, so it increases the stakes of the European elections and we're going to witness a really exciting and important electoral campaign.
Now, I guess the inevitable question, the Central European University has been a really difficult topic of discussion here in Brussels all year long. And they've now announced in recent days that they're going to have to move some of their degree programs, that they haven't found a way to be compatible with Hungary's new higher education law. As someone who was an academic and has been an insider in Hungarian politics, what's your take on that situation or, or what is your message for what needs to happen next? Well, probably I'm the last one, but I'm still hoping for a happy end. It's a highly complex issue, but I think basically a political one. There's an infringement procedure against the higher education law in Hungary at the table of the European Court of Justice. So we have to wait for the ruling of the European Court of Justice. On the other hand, uh, I see a loss of mutual trust between the university and the government. And, well, I'm I'm just in between. <laughs> so that's a, that's a very sad and very delicate, and sometimes very frustrating situation for me. I hope that they will find a good solution and the CEU will stay in, in Budapest. Because they still have some operations there, but yes. I th if I'm understanding it correctly, they didn't want to invite new students to the campus knowing they might not be able to complete their degree there. The courses accredited by the Hungarian authorities will stay in Hungary because they have the Hungarian accreditation. But most of the courses have no Hungarian accreditation, only American one. And as far as I know, I just saw the press conference, they will take the courses with American accreditation to Vienna according to their plans. Mm -hmm. And have you raised it yourself with the Hungarian government or is it a process that you leave to others? Well, informally. Formally, I have no powers in that. You know, education is a competence, exclusive competence of the member states. So during private talks, of course, I raise the issue. And on both sides, I try to mediate. But um, unfortunately, it was useless. Another thing I got tipped off on is that your work on something called Discovery EU, there's some results that are coming back for that now. Do you want to tell us a little bit more about what Discovery EU is and what you're finding? Discover EU is originally is an initiative of two young German guys who raised the idea of going back to the interrail schemes of the 70s, 80s, probably 90s, which was a common experience of the West European and some young people from the Central Europe citizens. We want to develop it as an educational project. So somehow link Discover EU, which is a, basically a free railway ticket for the 18 years old young European citizens to some non-formal parts of education to identify a special topic year by year and to link the project to this uh, topic. Did you get any complaints from Ryanair that people can't get free Ryanair tickets or EasyJet tickets? Or Wizz Air, in fact? Not so far. I think even travel companies are quite flexible in that respect because probably they also have this experience from their youth that Interrail was really more than a railway experience. It was a kind of feeling or something like that. And probably it's the embryonic form of the European citizenship. And probably that's the reason why they didn't complain. That's actually a really good point. So you grew up behind the Iron Curtain, and now you're involved in all of these programs of exchange of culture or education of, of one thing or another. Do you find that people sort of 
participate equally regardless of where they come from in the EU? Or is there a gap that you need to close, that there's less enthusiasm in one part? I'm working on that because I think it's really a huge historic award for me to be responsible for these projects because you're right, when I was student in 1987 when Erasmus was launched, I couldn't participate just because I was behind the Iron Curtain. I was a university student as well, but I but I couldn't apply, I couldn't participate. So I think it's a for me that's the the nicest symbol of the European integration and the European unification that now a commissioner with a Hungarian nationality can build up this project for the upcoming generations. Yes, I think there's still a gap. I couldn't say if it's um, east-west or south-north or or it's simply a social gap inside the countries, but there are gaps. Uh, that's why we want to use the increased budget of Erasmus to make it more uh, socially inclusive. You know, most people think of education as an intellectual experience, and obviously it's that, or something that gets you a better job. But for a country like Australia, where I'm from, where I grew up, it's the second biggest export industry. Like, there is a massive effort to reach out to students from other countries and to charge them fees to come to Australian universities. How much is that seen and that industry developing in Europe? You know, obviously, countries like the UK have some very prestigious universities and others would like a slice of that market. Do you get involved here in Brussels in helping them to lift their standards and to promote education as a service? Yes, when I was in Australia nine years ago or eight years ago, I was astonished to see how important the higher education area market-wise there. That's why we launched the European University Scheme. Uh, the first call is now on, it's been published, and the deadline is February, and we would like to see strong, interconnected, but flexible forms of close cooperation among the European universities. One of the most sensitive issues will be the language, Contrary to Australia or the United States or even China, we don't have a lingua franca. So we have to adjust this, how to overcome linguistic barriers, how to develop a common language for the higher education cooperation, and how to protect national languages, not to make any harm to the national sensitivities. It is a complicated task, but we are progressing quite well, so I hope that by 2025 we're going to have a really robust and competitive higher education area. And thinking of Brexit, actually, I mean, I know it's the topic no one likes to talk about, but... How do you feel about something like that, where you come from a country, Hungary, that worked for a long time to join the EU um, and for a long time was excluded from that sort of broader democratic community in Europe? And then to see a country leave, does that have any particular effect on you or or you're just over it now that it's been going on for two years? Well, I think everybody's sad about Brexit. But when we talk about the concrete relations and how, because education research Of course, youth and culture are probably the most, hmm, how to say, the most sensitive areas of the future cooperation. As far as I know, higher education area, academia, but also the people coming from the culture are very pro-European, committed to the European project, and they usually complain us about Brexit. So we have to find a good solution 
how to live together in the future, but it's basically up to the United Kingdom how they define their position, their role in in the future world and in the future Europe. Okay, um, I'm trying to think now what other question there might be. Um, are you working on? We we can cut out that little bit. <laughs> culture, culture, yeah, let's do culture. Okay, cultural heritage. Yep. and I'm very proud of that because you know there was a gap of the European years. Previously, there had been a series of European years. We had the European Year of, of Development, European Year of Citizenship, and so on and so forth. But this commission has stopped this tradition, and we have this one-off experience of the European Year of Cultural Heritage. And we made um, a plan for this year, which basically a bottom-up year. And I'm really amazed with the activity I faced um, at local level, but also at regional level, there's a lot more than 3,000 events at local and, and regional level. And I witnessed uh, really local communities celebrated themselves and opened up museums, opened up uh, not only the tangible, but the intangible parts of their treasuries. So if we can continue this, I think it can contribute to the debates of the European identity. And again, that could be a very important part of this reflection period on the European identity. Commissioner Navracic, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for coming. And now it is time to welcome back the podcast panel. We're experiencing Hurricane Ryan here in my office. If you hear a buzzing or a humming, that is an overactive heating system. Good morning, Alva. Hurricane Ryan, I'm going to call you that in the future. Thank you for that. (laughs) Good morning, Lena. Good morning, Ryan. Good morning. Well, uh, speaking of H's, or H's in the case of the Irish, maybe we need to start with the hard Brexit that is looming if Britain is about to crash out. I am a little bit horrified that such a modern, large country as Britain could have gone through everything it's gone through over the last three or four days. I was thinking about this this morning, and I feel like the Tories are self-indulging in a boring... I don't know, talent show that I'd like to call Tories Got Confidence, where they just continue to keep voting for the least worst option. And now Theresa May continues on staggering, stumbling towards a potentially hard Brexit. Is this show getting any ratings? I'm tempted to switch off the TV, I'm afraid. I think that the Tories are just continually shooting themselves in the foot. It's very nice to see that Jacob Rees-Mogg's can only fire blanks though isn't it <laughs> like he's he, he threatens this no confidence vote and then nothing happens again least worst option continues well he might have sunk the deal if there's 117 people against Theresa May you can bet most of those 117 are against the deal and that tells us something about how big the gap is that she needs to close and she's not going to get it by getting some new gift wrapping on the deal today in Brussels Lena it's 12 months. We have a bit of uh, weird stability. I think it's very interesting. But you think she's really going to last for 12 months? Look, you never know. 
Okay, you never know. They lost the power. They lost the power as a as a country in within the EU. It with the right, all, all this is we passed it. But we have a twelve months of changing the European Parliament. We have the upcoming elections. We have uh, this her and and we don't know what she's going to be doing if she's going to survive. It, miracles happen. I think what happened yesterday is really miracles a miracle. Are miracles. <laughs> it's only where only one miracle exists on the planet. Ryan. But she did a bit of a miracle by saying, "I'm yes. not going to stand in the yes. next election." And she's going to be in trouble if that election happens in four weeks. It's all the rage now to be like, I'm standing down, but not just now. Yeah. That's Nancy Pelosi, too. What is it about women in politics who have to make these offers? We don't want to let go. That's our problem. We don't want to let go. Once they are there, they're stuck forever, you know? Now, look who's just walked in. Zoya Sheftalovich. Ryan, hello. (laughs) I'm excited. I hear Theresa May. I hear Brexit. The antennas go up and the door gets opened. So tell us, is this Britain having a midlife crisis? I feel like they lost their empire, but they never quite figured out who they were. And we're just all living the results of that therapy session. Look, I think it is one of those things where, you know, a a slightly faded power, someone who used to be in the prime of their life and now perhaps is a little bit less relevant is kind of hasn't realized the fact that they are on the wane. And I mean, even just this morning, I was listening to the Today program on the BBC and uh, all these various Brexiteers were talking about how all all she needs to do, all May needs to do is just tell the EU that, you know, she the EU has to do better uh, and then it'll be fine. And uh, it was quite funny that they think that that hasn't been something that she has tried right. already. I think, look, it is a real exercise in self-immolation at the moment when it comes to the Conservative Party. But, you know... But Labour as well. Well, that's the problem. There's, I mean, the thing is that the alternative is not the well-oiled machine of the Labour Party of years gone by. And I think that also the alternative is not as palatable to the electorate, the general electorate. So I think that Theresa May benefits from having an opposition that's not particularly effective against her. And also, there's not that many people who are competent, who both want the job and would have the votes to get the job. Like, it's really a case that there's a majority for nothing in Britain at the moment. Not for a new leader, not for this deal, not for reversing course. It's just a series of dead ends. in politicians, I think, now. In, in UK, you don't find like uh, these amazing uh, politicians, visionaries that they will pull together and step up and say, "Okay, we have a different vision for this disaster of losing the power in this continent and worldwide." But is the, it you, in you the past that a visionary leader is just someone who could ignore reality, Twitter, general opposition, and just plow on ahead? And now people are stuck with all of these mechanisms of accountability and feedback that they can't be visionary like they used to be. It's because. The leadership machine of making a leader has changed a lot. We're not living the times of wars. We're not living, we, we have a different kind of conflicts and wars, but we're not revealing people that they will come up from grassroots level and provide an alternative for the citizens. This is not the case now with the UK, I think, and worldwide and even in Europe. Uh, otherwise, we wouldn't have uh, interesting uh, leaders here and there in, in certain countries. We might European have a non-Manfred Weber <laughs> candidate for yeah. European Commission president. Well, I mean, the, the problem is it's, it's the professionalization of politics. I mean... People just go straight into it. There's not really much character building in the outside world. There isn't an understanding of what real people's lives are. It was funny, I was talking the other day about the Gilets Jaunes, uh, well, as we all have been, with a fellow colleague, with Jacopo Barigazzi, who's an Italian colleague of ours. And we were discussing the fact that in another 
lifetime, perhaps if we hadn't been quite as socially mobile due to luck and work and opportunity and skills, perhaps we would have been out in the streets as well because it's a really... I don't think people know what real poverty is. And I'm sure, actually, I, well, I don't know, but I think probably, Lena, you are aware of what it's like to live on the breadline. I certainly, when I first left Ukraine and migrated as a refugee, uh, was in a deep, deep level of poverty where, you know, there was a negative bank account balance. And I remember my dad is a mathematician and we were standing in a supermarket when I was seven years old and he was doing the maths to figure out which toilet paper was the cheapest on a per square basis. (laughs) So, you know, there's a really big difference. We talked last week about, you know, the fact that the change in, uh, in the petrol tax was quite minor but when you consider how people some people live and how difficult it can be to make ends meet I don't think politicians recognize that I don't think they have lived that experience and I think that that makes it very difficult to read the room or the country as the case may be yeah that's why I think the Tories are kind of I mean I think we are actually genuinely going to see the demise of the Tory party as a result of this because they've pinned all of their hopes all of their dreams but also the welfare of the entire country on Brexit and once this blows up in their face and you see people getting poorer and poorer they won't have any idea what the electorate are feeling what they want so the poorer that they become the further away they get from Tory norms and policies. But are we also just living in a western disease and I caution to say that I recognize that not everyone has the same level of income but it strikes me that from all of these identity and culture-based backlashes and political fights that we have now, that people frequently don't vote or act in their economic self-interest. And I suspect one of the reasons might be that not so many people are at the breadline anymore. People can afford to say, you know what, I don't care if I'm 5% poorer, I want to feel 30% better about myself and my country. And so I'm happy to shoot myself in the foot economically and go down these different rabbit holes of different issues. I mean, there's lots of different reasons why people voted for Brexit. And I think that people who were worse off voted in favour of Brexit due to austerity measures that they saw were being, you know, pushed upon them by the EU. It was a blame game. Really? It's always People been in scape- Sunderland voted and to also leave because EU of, because of what the EU did in Greece. And, and because and of skeptical. migration as well. You know, they that think that yeah. Polish people are taking their jobs or whatever. I mean, I think that's the reason. That's not why the upper middle class votes to leave. They vote on the basis of, yes, maybe migration, but not for the same reason. They're voting because they just don't want these people in their country. And also they want to take back sovereignty. You know, there's just a range of different reasons. And I don't think necessarily all, yeah, or most Tory politicians really realize the economic effect. True. Now, here's a question for you. Should I wear a gilet jaune in the Congress Hall in Davos? I thought that'd be really fun. If I just turn up in a yellow vest. <laughs> You'll get arrested, form. Ryan. <laughs> and we will not be able to help you in Switzerland. In Davos, it's too cold. It's too far. I'm sorry, Ryan. No, just take an eclair. You see, Alva sent us this beautiful photo of the eclair with the gilet jaune in Paris. Yes. Oh, yes. Yeah. yes. So you can as- sorry, we need to give yeah. that context to the people listening. Uh, of course, <laughs> of course. Alva's it's always... A, uh, a breakfast food dressed up as a gilet jaune. Yeah, it's, apparently it's the, yeah, the cake shop test. It's once- amazing that a cake could just smash up a bus stop like that and steal all of the MacBooks. <laughs> yeah, like once you get your cake or your protest on a cake... 
This is apparently the Russian cake test, and it's already happening on eclairs. So they've turned the eclairs yellow with a. So it's wearing a little. Well, gilet. one of my Twitter followers he sent me a lovely tweet yesterday, mm-hmm. and it was about baklava that was kind of like dressed up in Australian colours, and it was called the Europe cake in a shop in St Kilda in Melbourne, and I was a bit like, that's fascinating how cultural and food items get translated in the other side of the world where baklava got turned into the Europe cake. Oh, interesting. I know that was a bit of a segue. But but just to go back a little bit, I actually think the Brexit vote, a large part of that was not about Brexit in Europe at all, which everyone talks about. But I think a large part of it is to do with the electoral politics of the UK. It felt to me like maybe that vote was actually just a manifestation of the fact that 4 million Brits voted UKIP a year prior to the Brexit vote and only one MP from UKIP was elected. And I think it was a question of people going, well, it doesn't matter what I do in a general election, but here's an election where my one vote really does count because it's a simple majority, there's no electoral gymnastics. I'm just going to send a big old FU to the establishment because you didn't represent me and you don't count my votes. You have just got an amazing insight there and it explains why Theresa May will take us to a general election but not a second referendum because she's much more likely to get her way in a general election. Well, that's all we've got time for on this episode of EU Confidential. It is almost holiday time. I can feel the excitement in the air. Zoya, Lena, Alva, thank you so much for joining us once again. Thanks, Ryan. Thanks, Ryan. Thank you. Zoya. Hurricane Ryan, coming at you. (laughs) (laughs) As always, podcasting is a team effort. So big thank you to Andrew Gray, Anya Bunker, and Weidong Lin. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads.